Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie and Nathan. All right. Good to- <laughs> so good to see you there, Nathan. Sorry, I didn't know the right response. Or- we don't really have a good response there. We will get a little bit smoother. I don't know. Maybe we won't. Never. It feels it feels like it feels like the ship has sailed that we're going to open awkwardly each and every time. So that's my fault. Why? Because I'm just kind of awkward. You're- I'm, I'm awkward in front of the camera. No, you're not. <laughs> you're you're uh, charming. Thank you. Yeah charming okay so we promised and boy have we both been studying for this sometimes i wonder why we put ourselves through this there's so many things we could talk about and that we do talk about that are actually quite simple to prepare but we tend to be a little bit of the gluttons for punishment and we endeavor to we pick up these larger projects and this time the larger project that nathan and i have decided we wanted to share with you is we have done uh, quite a bit of study on the book do i stay christian by the author brian mclaren I know many of you are familiar with him, and if you're not, you sure should be. <laughs> He's a wonderful, wonderful uh, thinker, uh, theologian, and just a really, really beautiful open man. I'm going to open this by saying these next, I think we were going to do this in five episodes. Am I correct? That was the goal. Okay, we're going to try our very hardest to do this in five episodes. Uh, what his, what this book is, to give a little bit of a book review, a, a preview of the review, <laughs> is in this book, he walks us through... 10 reasons, 10 viable reasons why it would make sense to leave Christianity. And then he follows up with the second half of the book being 10 viable reasons to stay Christian. So can I interrupt just one second? Of course. The the name of the book is Do I Stay Christian? And then we are going to break down some of his points. Okay. So yeah. So do I stay Christian? And he says he goes through the no's and then he goes through the yeses. And I want to give some of you um, a bit of a trigger warning on this one. And that's saying something for me because I'm, um, I'm not very triggered by things like this, probably because I just swim in it all the time, but it is a little bit of a, this is a tougher, would you say this is, it's, it's a challenging read because it's a little bit, his honesty is absolutely beautiful and it's also brutal. Yeah. And so we actually decided that what we would do, rather than staying for three episodes with all of the reasons to leave, we decided that we wanted to give a more balanced approach and offer in each episode two of his points as to why to leave or why it would make sense for people to leave, and then two points uh, talking more about why to stay. Yeah. Yeah. So what what I've noticed from from reading this book, and I've been through it now a couple times, um, in, in just reading it the first time for myself and then reading it again to prepare for this, there, there's sort of two things that you have to separate here. His very specific question is st- staying Christian, meaning around staying within the practice of Christianity or what we would consider religious practices. Um, and in our groups and in our work, we have tried to help people differentiate the idea of of the practice of religion from spirituality and and he's not really criticizing the practice of spirituality or 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 supporting the practice of spirituality what he's really looking at is the practice of religion and and i think this is a por- an important differentiation because first of all many of the people that are in our groups or that we work with or that you work with are asking themselves that question what is the value or what is the harm in practicing religion the way that i do like institutional religion. Institutional religion. Yes. Yeah, thank you. That's a good clarification. Mm-hmm, sure. 
Um, and so uh, this book is not really addressing spirituality in general, but really the, the practice of religion. And a lot of people are asking that question in our groups. Should I stick with institutional religion as part of my spirituality? And, and Valerie and I both believe that it's really important that people make that decision for themselves. We do not try to push people one way or the other, uh, which is exactly why I like this book, yeah. because he brings out lots of really good points about how the institution of religion has and can still be harmful, but also how the practice of religion has and can still be very helpful. So I just wanted to, to point that out, that this is not a question of spirituality, but a question of institutionalized religious practice that we'll be addressing through his book. That's a really good distinction, Nathan. It, it sure is. And yeah, and I really, really love, just kind of to tag onto what you were saying, I really love how he is absolutely giving people the gift of their own discerning power, mm -hmm. meaning that Clearly, he has no agenda other than that people follow what feels right to them. And I think one of the things he even points out here is that when we uh, withhold information to manage people's decisions, that in and of itself is an unethical decision or it's an unethical practice. And so he's basically saying, I'm going to lay all the cards out. I'm going to actually say all of the ugly things right. <laughs> about institutional religion while I also say all of the things that make it valuable and um, give you the dignity of your God-given powers of discernment to do what feels right for you. So I love that all day long. Okay, should we kick it off, Nate? Let's do it. Okay, so we're going to start with point number one on the side of no. And point number one is this, because Christianity has been vicious to its mother. And this entire chapter that he, um, is, his, he focuses on anti-Semitism. And I'm going to go ahead, um, in each of these points, I'm going to read um, uh, just a little bit um, right there from right here from the text, and then we're going to go ahead and just take off from there. Okay, so he talks about how the earliest atrocities of Christianity began just decades after Jesus lived and died. Even though Jesus taught and modeled love and radical forgiveness, the religion that sprang up around his very name began very quickly to show a hateful face. And the first victim of its hostility was its own mother, Judaism. He goes on to say, the irony is so stark that it's hard to process. A Jewish movement with a Jewish founder and an all-Jewish original followers becomes, in a manner of a couple of decades, viciously anti-Jewish. From late in the first century onward, beginning with the author of the, fourth of the four Gospels and later including, oh dear, Tertullian, Origen, Mm -hmm. Chris, oh geez, I can't say that word. <laughs> Chris, uh, Chrysostom, uh, Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine, many of Christianity's most revered leaders, vilified the Jews, setting the stage for inhumane acts of persecution against Jewish people in the coming centuries, from ghettoization and banishments to forced conversions and mass executions. I have more to say, but I want to see if you have anything to say before I just go on and on. Uh, no, why don't you finish the what you were going to add okay. there? So, so this whole idea um, that we began almost within the like he, two decades after Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, we um, became um, a very, very um, anti-Jewish religion. Even so much so that when the COVID nineteen pandemic emerged, there were some researchers that began to study 
um, plagues throughout the history of time and found uh, that throughout history, plagues were oftentimes connected to um, anti-Jewish sentiments and scapegoating, meaning that the Jewish people uh, throughout history have been blamed for plagues. I mean, how weird is that? That's just um, complete and total ignorance. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I think just building off of that, um, the idea of scapegoating is exactly what ended up happening to to the poor Jewish people when it came uh, to how their Christian cousins began to treat them. Um, you know, ironically enough, Jesus, who was a Jew, never called for revenge for his his death, his Apostles never called for a violent uprising or for revenge or curses upon uh, the Jewish community who who was responsible uh, for his his crucifixion. But later, that became exactly what the call was. Um, Christians wanted a scapegoat. They wanted an enemy to blame their problems on, like you mentioned, the plagues. Um, and so it became very popular to to blame the Jews. The other side of that, though, is after uh, World War II, with the with the Jewish uh, concentration camps and all of the horrible atrocities that the Jews suffered, there became another version of this Christian movement, which was to infantilize the Jews and to say, oh, they need us. We must save them. It wasn't to hate them, but it was to treat them like five-year-old children. And to say, oh, we need them, that, that we, they need us. We have to be their saviors. And so on the one hand, we've hated them and, and oppressed them. But then on the other hand, uh, in our efforts to, uh, to, to come out and, and, and change that behavior, we've almost done the opposite. We've made them into these little helpless infants that need us. And we've created a savior complex for ourselves around them. But in either way, we have not treated them as equals. We have not treated them as a loving, healthy, religious practice that in many ways is equal to Christianity. Well, it's equal to Christianity in every way. It's different. It's different. <laughs> That's what I mean by yeah. that. Is, that, is yeah. that although there are some differences in what we believe, the 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 the, the religion itself is, is our equal and we have not treated it that way. Sure, sure. So if you think about it this way, we have the very, very beginnings of the oppression that began right after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself, um, which carried on um, and has, has persisted through the Protestant Reformation. And even a few hundred years after that, um, of course, the atrocities of the Holocaust, which you already mentioned. And I loved, I didn't really think about that, Nathan, but yes, yeah, so we create this uh, completely oppressed and marginalized population that has um, really, really suffered for centuries. And then we Christians come in to graciously and generously save them. When we created their problems when to begin with. When we created the problems to begin with. Something else that McLaren talks about that is very fascinating about, uh, once again, how Christians have really um, just mistreated and abused uh, the Jewish nation and population, you know, almost, you know, since the beginning, well, since the beginning of certainly uh, the Jesus Christ movement is that um, this is a little bit more uh, current, but there is a more recent uh, what are we, there's a more recent movement called Christian Zionism, which is this idea that um, we as Christians are using um, Jews or Jewish people um, as pawns uh, in the service of the fulfillment of end time prophecies, that these Jewish people are instrumental in helping um, us as Christians forward our Christian cause. 
Um, and just that he says this Jews in Israel are useful to Christians because of their supposed supposed role in bringing in the last days. And that Zionism perpetuates a simple but terribly dangerous theological idea that Christianity, um, that the Christian God chooses some people for exclusive privilege, leaving everyone else um, in disfavor. So the Jewish people in our ignorant Christian, um, in, in our ignorance as Christians, they serve the purpose of helping Christians feel like they are more exalted. And then, of course, when that um, supposed thing happens in the end of times, uh, Jewish people, will, I guess, go away or they will become Christian. They'll be converted. Anything you wanted to add to that, Nath? No, I think that covers it. All right. So just finally, one last thing that I'll say, it says here, Jews in Israel are useful to Christians because of their supposed role in bringing in the last days during or after which they will either convert or be sent to the fires of hell as if God in the end will outdo the worst Christian hate crimes against Jews. So his contention here is that as Christians, historically, uh, although we are a movement that was born of a Jewish man, we have become incredibly uh, hostile and hateful towards uh, the Jewish religion and the faith. And that's for him a reason to go. Okay, so let's move on to uh, the second reason to answer the question, no, do I stay Christian? And he says one of the, uh, this is sort of connected and Point number two he makes for not staying Christian is because of Christianity's suppression of dissent or Christian versus Christian violence. Okay, now I know how much you enjoy talking about these early this early history in Constantine. Nathan, do you want to go ahead and kick us off on this one? Well, the you know the the the, the Christian on Jewish violence and the Christian on Christian violence really aren't that different. Um, because both are sort of rooted in this need for authoritarian power. Yep. And so Constantine was a, a Roman emperor. And, and I'm remembering he's like the fourth century, I think, AD or so. And what he was facing here as the emperor of Rome is a huge empire that was crumbling. And it was crumbling for a lot of different reasons. It was suffering economically. It was really large. And so it was hard to defend the borders. People were beginning to defect into other lands. Um, but one of the biggest problems that he had is he's trying to figure out ways to unite people who had very different religious, cultural, and economic backgrounds. And so he decided, um, based on a vision that he reported, that he was going to try Christianity. And that if he painted crosses on his, his shield uh, and did everything in the name of Christ, and if he could win his battles, that that would become the state religion. And that is what happened. He, he made this deal with God and, and he won the battles. And so he decided to make Christianity the state religion. But the problem is, is when you, of course, combine uh, state and church, is that you have this horrible marriage of power and money and wealth uh, and you have you have spiritual leaders seeking political power. You have spiritual leaders seeking political protection. You have political leaders wanting spiritual blessings, and you get into a really bad situation where you can't have dissent. You can't allow for people to have opinions different than the church-state opinion. So, what Brian McLaren says about this is he says the support of a zealous and growing religion 
would help Constantine unify his empire, pacify his diverse constituents, and gain moral authority for his actions. Similarly, the bishops of the church had a lot to gain from a deal with the emperor. To have the emperor's support would elevate their status, attract new converts, protect them from persecution, increase their power, and perhaps even add to their wealth. So pretty soon, this became a very toxic, reciprocal, uh, ugly, unholy marriage. Unholy marriage. These mm -hmm. were two bedfellows that did not belong together because the church benefited from the state mm -hmm. and the state benefited from the church and God ended up being used or God through religion ended up being used as a pawn, a weapon, a weapon to uh, protect and forward the cause of, uh, of the empire. Right. So then you have people that come along and say, hey, I don't agree with the way that the church teaches this or the way the state enforces this. And you're no longer talking about spiritual principles, but now you're threatening the political power of the government, as well as the spiritual leaders who are in bed with the political power of the government. And so as you have reformers come along, they have to be stopped. They have to be suppressed because it threatens everything they've worked so hard to achieve in this very unholy marriage. And it leads to, and it led to, and, and to some degree, there's still Christian on Christian violence in order to protect the power and the wealth. Yes. And so what ends up happening is anybody who has a differing opinion or who is uh, more interested in truth over loyalty to the church or the nation, they become the scapegoat. They become the bad guy. And oftentimes the word that is used is heretic. Mm -hmm. So uh, McLaren says this, when I look back across Christian history, I can't help but see that there is a fine line between the would-be reformer and the heretic. Successful reformers are revered as heroes and saints by their followers in later generations, but failed or rejected reformers are remembered as heretics by the victorious anti-reformers who write the history. When the heretic to some is the heroic reformer to others, and when the orthodox commit crimes against humanity in the name of orthodoxy, the term heresy and orthodoxy seem equally problematic and say as much about power struggle as they do about either theology or morality. And so what we're looking at here is a huge problem in re organized religion and certainly in the history of, of big Christianity, which is this idea that um, in the beginning, it was about Jesus Christ helping people learn how to love in an infinite way. And later, Christianity became co-opted by the state and there was a, a huge benefit for the state and the church to mutually uh, gratify one another for each other's power and protection. Mm -hmm. And then those who didn't play well became the heretics. And of course, back in the day, back um, anciently, heretics were um, burned at the stake, um, among other physical or violence worse. or worse. <laughs> yeah. Is there some, what's worse than being burned at the stake? Nathan? Oh, first, ha first having your uh, stomach cut open and your guts pulled out. And wow. then burned at the stake after that. But the point is, is that there definitely was this this sense of uh, the heretics. And, and, and Brian points out here that, that the word heretic actually just is rooted in the word uh, nonconformist. Yep. Right. 
it wasn't heretic didn't have a negative connotation until they made it negative. Yep. A nonconformist was just someone who saw things differently. But in this case, the nonconformist became a problem. And so heretic took on a very negative connotation uh, and was punishable by death. And we have lots of examples of good men and women who gave their lives as a testimony to um, saying, no, this isn't right. Uh, one of my favorite is Joan of Arc. She's just like, you know, she was clearly called by God, did everything she was asked for the protection and the love of her people, and was still put to death by the church because she was a nonconformist. Um, and so in today's world, we don't have so much of that in Christianity. We're not putting people to death, but we are still doing um, archaic things like excommunication, banishment, things like that. Uh, actually, McLaren says this, today, abuse of Christian by Christian tends to be more emotional and spiritual rather than physical. Right. But shunning and disowning, which are forms of relational banishment, public shaming and character assassinations, private humiliations, church trials of nonconformists, blacklisting and other forms of Christian on Christian uh, cruelty continue. And more and more traumatized people are coming forward with their stories. We in our church are no strangers to this. Yep. Right now, if someone has a non-conforming idea, they can be disciplined, which is a form of uh, it's 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 a form of terrorism. Of terrorism. It's a form of terrorism. Where um, there is it's psychological and emotional abuse to the person who has the ability to see and the courage to speak, and this is one of the reasons why uh, Ryan McLaren says uh, this is a sick system. And when those uh, speak truth to power, and especially those who do so respectfully, are um, are are punished um, in inhumane ways, um, this is an institution that we can uh, feel legitimized in feel legitimate in walking away from. Yeah. Okay, anything you want to say before we move on to the two? We're going to now counter this with two reasons to stay. Are you ready? Yep. Okay, so reason number one to stay Christian is because leaving hurts allies. So he opens up this chapter by talking about um, the, the beautiful people that he has come into contact with. He works with Richard Rohr in the Center of Action and Contemplation in, um, in this big tent Christianity sort of way where there, it's a very non-denominational, um, open way of looking at, um, at spreading uh, the ideas of Jesus Christ in a way that has nothing to do with tribalism. And he talks about how uh, throughout the entire world, there are beautiful people. And he actually really doesn't even focus on Christianity in this, in this section. There are beautiful people worldwide in all religions and in the secular world as well um, that are really trying to help move forward um, a lot of goodness. But he also talks about how when, when somebody chooses to leave, um, in our case, uh, Christianity, it really, really um, impacts and makes it more challenging for those to stay. One of the quotes he says is that every person who quits makes it a little harder for those of us who stay. And that uh, trying to help heal Christianity is a marathon. It's a long-term race mm -hmm. and that we need all of the help that we can get. So he talks about how there are 
Um, he just breaks down. I thought this was fun because they say he says the word podcasters. <laughs> so he says there are pastors, church planters, nuns, friars, priests, bloggers, bishops, writers, nonprofit leaders, podcasters. That's us. <laughs> Um, community organizers, migrant farm workers, urban farmers, caregivers, artists, church secretaries, and good neighbors who practice and preach an examined and intentional faith across all congregations and traditions. Um, there are so many of them. They're creative, they're smart, they're sincere, and they're dedicated. And when we think about all of the good people who who make the conscious choice in the face of their own um knowledge about the problems of Christianity that choose to stay to be the change, then that is motivating for many of us to stay ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of the notes that I made from this chapter, I think this chapter was really beautiful. Um, he, he points out that um, religious leaders uh, who have created within churches, almost like a political system, as we were just talking about a few minutes ago, if, if good people leave, the vacuum allows those people to continue to garner more and more power. Um, and when good people leave, it really is an answer to their prayers. Their prayers are, hey, make this simpler, make them go away. I want to maintain this power. And so when we leave, we are actually answering their prayers. As you pointed out, change occurs oftentimes from dreamers and reformers and those who are willing to first fail but then get it right. And he brings out a couple points. He said, from the brutality of Constantine came the desert mothers and fathers who um, were really the first Christian mystics. From the Crusades came Hildegard of uh, Bingen and Francis of Assisi. From the Spanish Inquisition came Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. From slavery came the civil rights movement. From patriarchy came the equal rights movement and so forth. And so his point was, is yes, we are absolutely dealing with some horrible things, but much change came because people didn't give up in the face of challenges. They didn't give up in the face of the power system that was oppressing them. They fought back. Beautifully said, Nathan, uh, just to, to heighten that point, McLaren says, what greater damage will the gatekeepers do without prophetic voices on the edge of the inside challenging them? He goes on to say, and this really speaks, Nathan, to you're talking about how this, um, what we have to do is have a really high tolerance for the long game approach. He says, if you want evolution, you have to accept struggle and mass extinction events. If you want birth, you have to go through labor that feels like it's killing you. Mm -hmm. If you want a new genesis of diversity and beauty, you have to accept that things must look absolutely hopeless first. You have to commit to do the right thing against all odds. Otherwise, the systems maintain their equilibrium and the status quo spins on. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think those, you know, his points here about what brutal acts Christianity imposed and then the beautiful people that emerged from those beautiful, those, those horrific acts is a perfect example of what we need today. You know, I was actually thinking about that very part that you were discussing, Nathan, with those great reformers and mystics that kind of came through the ages. And I couldn't decide for myself if it was more that there was just a lack of record keeping, or was it really true that in every century, one reformer <laughs> emerged for all, like, you know what I'm saying? Like there was just, 
these are very brave people, but there aren't very many of them on record right. that rose up. Right. And to me, that makes me so um, impressed at their tenacity and their bravery to do it outside of the validation of, in some cases, their entire communities. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. There probably were more reformers. Brian actually talks about this in his book, that many, many, many people who work for good will disappear into anonymity. They won't be remembered. Yeah. There are a handful of really big names. Um, Teresa Avila is one that I just love. Yeah. I've read some of her stuff. Lots of people from our own religion have quoted her. And so you will have these big names that will be remembered forever. But there's a lot of people who will just quietly go about their business, live and die, and make small reforms and not be remembered. My point was not really to, to say, hey, we need a, you know, a, a new savior figure. My point was to say, out of adversity, oftentimes comes great thought, great reform, and great spirituality. And these were just a handful of examples. Beautiful. That's, um, in some ways, the articulation of the, the hero's journey. And that many of us go on, or all of us, um, life um, frequently gives all of us, or, you know, if everything's going well, we all go on multiple heroes journeys and not to say they're going to be remembered, you know, in spotlights, Right. but they, they actually sort of become sacred to us, even if they're remembered by no one else. Okay, let's move on to point uh, number two for why we stay Christian, and that is because Leaving defiantly or staying compliantly are not my only options. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in this whole, in this particular section, what he talks about, of course, is that um, some people feel like they only have a couple of choices that they have to leave in rage or they have to zip, zip it up, muzzle up and be conformists. And he's basically saying, no, we have to think more complexly than that. He says this about uh, defiance. He says, when I say defiant, I don't mean ungracious. In this chapter, he talks about two beautiful nuns who were older and they had done a lot of reform and they were actually worried that the Catholic church was going to go after them and excommunicate them. And he says this about them as he visited with them and really felt their pains. He said, these women radiated such gentleness and inner calm that accusations of being ungracious simply could not stick. No, with a firm yet gracious defiance, these two women will keep speaking their truths and will continue doing so from the inside as long as they can. If the religious company men eventually do come to escort them from their institutional premises, I know that they will keep speaking boldly yet graciously on their way out too, and then they will continue to do so from the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think... He, you have a podcast where I think you talked about um, this previously about different ways that people remain or uh, leave institutions. So I believe it was episode 12 of Latter-day Struggles um, where you discuss Adam Grant's different approaches to struggle with institutional religion. You can be quiet, you can leave angry, you can stay angry, you can leave. There's a whole bunch of different uh, combinations. So it's called, um, it's episode 12. It's called, Do You Speak Up, Walk Away, Suck It Up, or Check Out? Mm -hmm. And yes, that's exactly what this is talking about. And he's basically talking about how um, this is this is how people tend to uh, navigate a complex relationship with any institution, because of course he's a, he's a secular uh, researcher, but this absolutely 100% does apply to institutional religion. 
And oftentimes many people uh, think that there's only two options. They think that they have to conform or uh, there's, a, there's a new phrase I know that's going around quite a bit on social media, this quiet quitting. So oftentimes there are people that conform quietly or they leave quietly or they leave in a bluster. And what McLaren here is trying to forward is the possibility that we do none of those things. And um, yeah, he actually says this, he says, I can no longer put a naive trust in the structures of the Christian religion, seeing and knowing what I see and know now. But instead of rejecting my religious community, I remain paradoxically present to it, neither minimizing its faults nor hating it for its faults. I may not succeed in influencing it by my example, but it will not succeed in conforming me to its example either. Yeah. Nor will it tempt me to mirror the rejection it has shown to so many who have dared to differ, dared to ask questions, and dared to challenge it. Yeah. So what I really like about this is that we, we can stay quietly or stay compliantly, which gives the institution power over us. We can leave angrily. But in some ways, you're still giving the institution power over you. The institution still controls your behavior. You're just doing everything the opposite, and you're giving them a lot of emotional space in your head when you stay angry. The idea is you can stay and you can work to make things better. And he um, gives a quote from a guy named Oscar Romero that I just loved. And he said this, he said, profits are profits for change, not in a, or in a time, not their own. Profits are profits for change in a time, not their own. And this is kind of what you alluded to with what you just read. We may not see big changes in our day. We may not see it in our lifetime, but we are working for a greater good. And so I hear people say, yeah, well, I, I just don't see any progress from the church. Well, it may be slow as molasses. And sometimes it feels like maybe it isn't coming at all. But profits are profits for change in a time not their own. We have to think about where we are taking this for our future generations. And so for me, that's an important point, is that I want things to be better for my kids and for their kids than they were for me. Let me just end this episode with this quote by uh, the great uh, Thomas Merton. He says this, do not depend on the hope of results. What, when you are doing the sort of work you have taken on, you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no worth at all, if not perhaps results, if not perhaps results opposite of what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you will start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. All the good that you will do will not come from you, but from the fact that you have allowed yourself in the obedience of faith to be used by God's love. Think of this more, and gradually you will be free from the need to prove yourself, and you can be more open to the power that will work through you without your knowing it. The real hope, then, is not in something we can think we can do, but in God who is making something good out of it in some way that we cannot see. Fantastic. It's a beautiful way to end this episode. So we today, as you have seen and witnessed, you have heard two pretty compelling reasons to leave Christianity and two pretty compelling reasons to stay in Christianity. We're going to go ahead and close here today. 
And we will pick this conversation up next time with two more points as to why not to stay Christian and two more points as to why to stay Christian. If this is something that is um, thought-provoking and feeling-provoking, then good. (laughs) This is what we are here for. We are really, really grateful for any opportunities that we have to serve you. And I'm so incredibly grateful for those of you who are taking a pause, um, sharing this episode, writing ratings, and reviewing this on your podcast provider. And also those of you who are subscribing to this podcast. Also, if you're interested in joining a Space Limited uh, group that I have been running, um, they're all up and running and um, many of them are full, if not all of them, but please go ahead and reach out to me and let me know if you are interested. Also, if you want to just simply send me your email, I am um, in the process of putting newsletters together and doing some online courses. So I'm really trying to keep up with the, the need and the demand uh, for the work that we are doing here with you and for you. And uh, last but not least, if there's somebody who is interested in um, individual consults with me, please reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com. Or if you want more long-term work, I, I have some colleagues that work with me that can provide you with that. So please reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com or on Instagram at Latter-day Struggles Podcast. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.